This is the KOTO Community Radio News for Monday, September 26th. I'm Julia Caulfield. In today's headlines, Hillary Nelson missing in Himalayas. Deanna Colliker named EMS Physician of the Year. Looking for a date? How about a fig and a mountain weather forecast? World-renowned mountaineer and Telluride local Hillary Nelson is missing after an accident on Mount Mansalu in the Himalayas. According to reports from the Himalayan Times and eyewitnesses, Nelson and her partner Jim Morrison were skiing down from the Mount Mansalu summit when she fell into a crevasse roughly 2,000 feet deep. Morrison skied down to Camp 4 to alert their guides, reporting notes rescue operations have been hampered by bad weather. A separate avalanche on the mountain also killed at least one individual, with others severely injured. Nelson is the first person to complete a ski descent of Lhotse, the first woman to link Everest and Lhotse in a 24-hour push. She completed a double summit of Denali and was the first person to ski descent Papsura Peak. She was named National Geographic Adventurer of the Year, a North Face athlete. She guest-directed Mountain Film in 2021. Dr. Diana Colliker had an interest in EMS medicine since the beginning of her career. When I was a resident, I, it's kind of a subspecialty of emergency medicine. Colliker is the director of trauma services at the Telluride Regional Medical Center and director of EMS for the Telluride Fire Protection District. I think it is um, a really important aspect of emergency medicine that needs to be done well. And in particularly in rural areas, EMS has to really, you know, um, make decisions uh, on the spur of the moment and oftentimes without a lot of real time medical direction. Earlier this month, Colliker was named EMS Physician of the Year by the Western Regional EMS and Trauma Advisory Council, a group providing care in six counties across the Western Slope. While Colliker doesn't like to make a huge fuss over her win, she says it's an honor. Particularly because it was, um, you know, a nomination um, from my peers, Um, you know, people that I have known for years and this region and we have all worked collectively to make our rural EMS agencies um, the best they can be. So it was it was really an honor to to be nominated and to win this award. She notes, especially in rural parts of the state, having top notch EMS is key. We cover such a vast area. Um, So, for instance, if you are you know, part of the Denver metro system, you may pick up a patient and, you know, take them 10 minutes to the nearest medical center where then you hand off their care. And and, and their job is really hard as well. In San Miguel County, she notes EMS may pick up a patient at Trout Lake or on top of Dallas Divide. And you may have to transport that patient who's, you know, having a heart attack or having a stroke And you have to be able to assess that, do whatever life-saving, you know, uh, procedures or um, interventions that are needed to then be able to stabilize them and get them to the 
next best place. And that might be to a helicopter from the top of Dallas to send them to, you know, uh, a regional trauma center, or it might be, you know, transporting them in an ambulance to to me as the emergency physician at uh, the Telluride Medical Center. And while she does appreciate the award, she notes it's way more than just her that makes EMS in San Miguel County work. I won this award because I have such an engaged agency that is so willing and um, wanting to do the very best job that they can. Dr. Colliker was awarded EMS Physician of the Year by the Western Regional EMS and Trauma Advisory Council. She has been practicing emergency care at the Telluride Regional Medical Center since 2005. Telluride is full of stellar art. World-class musicians grace the stage. Films from across the globe show in our theaters. But what if you're new to something and maybe feel a little nervous to get started? Enter the FIG. The FIG overall is intended to be a space for emerging artists. Um, We are really fortunate in Telluride to have a lot of great art come through the area, whether it's music and otherwise, and this is local specific. So hopefully people who are interested in trying something like comedy this time around will have the space to uh, work on something, to improve it, to share it with their peers, and hopefully it will encourage all of us to, um, you know, be artists together. That's Jackie Garcia, one of the co-founders of The Fig. Garcia, along with Miranda Beck, wanted to create a space where failure is okay and trying something new is encouraged. That's kind of what I want, what me and Jackie want from The Fig in general is to just have people feel comfortable trying something that they're uncomfortable at. Messy art, incomplete art to do it a little bit badly if you want, um, and to try again and to come up and, like, maybe bomb. I don't know. Like, I don't think anyone's going to bomb at this show. Everyone's going to do a great job. But, you know, to try out something that you figure out might not work and to come back and do it again. Right. Instead of wondering what if I got up on stage, what would it feel like? Instead of saying, whoa, that's too scary, I can't do that. It's like, actually... You can. Beck and Garcia note they hope to focus each event around a specific theme of art or performance. The first night, kicking off this week, will focus on comedy and improv. Beck notes they've cultivated a number of performers for the first half of the show, but for those who feel the urge to bear their soul, fear not. We are going to do an open mic portion as well. So right after intermission, we'll have everybody who wants to sign up during intermission one-minute slots or two-minute slots, um, up to 10 minutes. And hopefully we can get some people to, like, face their fears and get up in front of people and see that it's, like, okay and safe and people are happy and having fun. As for why the fig, Beck says it in part comes from an idea for a podcast. That was, like, uh, dating-themed. And it would be about, like, you know, disaster dates. Um, And so it would be called the fig because it's not the date. But Garcia adds it speaks to the need to just get up and try something new. There is a Sylvia Plath metaphor in the bell jar um, of the fig tree. And Sylvia Plath has this dream where she's looking up at a fig tree. And each fig that's on the fig tree represents a direction her life could take. So there are many different life paths. And in her indecision to pick one of the figs as they ripen, she picks no figs. And the figs start to slowly drop to the ground at her feet and rot. And so I like the name the fig as this way to be like, okay, we're picking one thing and we're just going to do it. We don't know where it's going to take us, but we're choosing this path. 
The first ever FIG event will take place at the Transfer Warehouse on Wednesday, September 28th. Doors open at 6 p.m. The show starts at 7. Those who would like to participate with the FIG in the future can email thefigtelluride at gmail.com. You can also check them out on Instagram at thefigtelluride. Housing is the name of the game these days in southwest Colorado, and soon new homes will be coming to Ridgeway. Rural Homes, the nonprofit developer behind the recent Pinion Park neighborhood in Norwood, is bringing the new project to Ridgeway. After a year of discussion and planning, the Wetterhorn Homes project broke ground last week, with developers installing road, water, and sewer infrastructure. The development will consist of 14 deed-restricted homes for the local workforce, sitting on North Laura Street between Otto and Frederick Streets. The for-sale homes will be a mix of two-bedroom, two-bath, and three-bedroom, three-bath, ranging from 1,000 to 1,600 square feet. According to Rural Homes, the houses will include access to fiber broadband, efficient air heating and cooling systems, rooftop solar systems, and easy installation of electric vehicle charging. Home buyers will be selected through a lottery process later this year. Rural homes say the homes will range from around $250,000 to around $450,000. To sign up as an interested buyer, go to wetterhornhomesridgeway.co. More than a decade after Colorado began work to rescue the greenback cutthroat trout from the brink of extinction, Colorado Parks and Wildlife announced it discovered the state fish naturally reproducing in Herman Gulch, one of the first places CPW stocked the fish. In a statement, Governor Jared Polis notes the state continues to stock trout from hatcheries, but says it's an exciting step for the future of the species. CPW says the discovery of the fish is a, quote, huge breakthrough for the agency, noting the greenback cutthroat trout was considered extinct in 1937 due to pollution from mining, pressure from fishing, and competition from other trout species. Multiple agencies are investigating water contamination at Lincoln Creek amid rumors of a fish kill at Grizzly Reservoir off Independence Pass, east of Aspen. KDNK's Morgan Neely has more. The U.S. Forest Service, Pitkin County Environmental Health, and state agencies are all attempting to learn why water in Lincoln Creek has turned murky in recent days. Officials with the Forest Service and Pitkin County Healthy Rivers believe tailings and waste from old mines in the watershed have become more concentrated in the reservoir since historic storms in summer 2021 and this year's above-average monsoon season. Eyewitnesses say the upper Roaring Fork River is also impacted. It's unclear if the situation poses a health risk to the public or to the lower Roaring Fork River. Grizzly Reservoir is operated by Twin Lakes Reservoir and Canal Company, which supplies water via Trans Mountain Diversions to Colorado Springs, Pueblo, and Aurora. Glenn Shriver, a caretaker for the reservoir, sent an unsolicited email to KDNK on Friday afternoon stating that observations of a fish kill were rumors and, quote, don't line up with the facts, end quote. The Independence Pass Foundation erroneously posted that, quote, all the fish in Grizzly Reservoir died, end quote, on the nonprofit's Facebook page early Friday and had acknowledged the error but not removed the original post by Friday evening. For KDNK News, I'm Morgan Neely.
The Environmental Protection Agency has issued a final determination to downgrade air quality in the Denver metro and northern Front Range area to severe, non-attainment for ground-level ozone. The effects of poor air quality on cardiorespiratory health are well documented, but how particulate matter intersects with other organs of the body is less known. Recent studies show bad air may also affect the gut microbiome in people as young as infants. For Rocky Mountain Community Radio, KGNU's Shannon Young spoke with Tanya Alderete, Assistant Professor of Integrative Physiology at CU Boulder, one of the leading scientists studying the link between air quality and gut health. Before we get into the details of your latest study, let's start with the basics. What is the gut microbiome and what role does it play in human health? So the gut microbiome is a community of bacteria and Well, we have bacteria living everywhere on our body, but the gut is a place where we have large amounts of bacteria. And these bacteria living in our gut play important functions that help aid in our own health. So bacteria can help with our immune system development, help control inflammation or contribute to increased inflammation. And it's been linked with many health outcomes like obesity, type two diabetes, neurodevelopment. So we're just beginning to understand the role that the gut microbiome plays in human health. Now, How does air pollution affect the gut microbiome? Air pollution, we can inhale air pollution, particulate matter that's in our environment. And this particulate matter can reach our gut through inhalation and diffusion from our lungs, where then once in the gut, it can impact gut bacterial communities, which is what we hypothesize is happening. So it might, for example, disrupt some bacterial communities, making it less of a hospital environment for them to live in or it might actually make it a better environment for certain bacteria to grow. So this is an area we're just beginning to understand. How recent are the studies linking air quality to the the bacteria in your gut? And how advanced is it? So there's been some epidemiological work early on, probably around 2017, 2016. I around that time where they were linking just associational studies with increased air pollution exposure being linked with flare-ups of intestinal bowel disease or Crohn's disease. And so this is what really got me interested for for the potential role that inhaled pollutants might have on our gut. And so following these studies, I conducted a small pilot study that looked at around 50 young adults from Southern California and just asked the question, is there any association between the air pollution that these young adults were exposed to and the bacteria that we saw in their gut. And so we found that near roadway air pollution exposure was associated with specific bacterial taxa that have been linked with obesity and type two diabetes. So to my knowledge, that was the first study specifically looking at air pollution and gut bacteria. Since then, there have been a few other studies looking at air pollution and the gut microbiome. And one study has found that bacteria in the gut may mediate the associations between air pollution and risk factors for type two diabetes which was really interesting. And then since this time, we followed up our original work in that small sample, and we used better sequencing methods to be able to look at the bacteria living in the gut in a little bit more detail down to the species level. And we again found that ambient air pollution exposure was associated with gut bacteria and these young adults. These were also in Southern California, once again. And then given these findings, I, I, understanding how important the gut microbiome is and early development, where the gut microbiome is rapidly developing within the first two two to three years of life. 
I wanted to know whether we saw these associations even sooner than what we were seeing in young adults. And that's why we conducted this study where we looked at six months of age. So let's get a bit more into the study uh, on babies, right? You mentioned you had already established a, a certain degree of connection in young adults in that same area. And now this recent study looks at babies. These babies were from a study group of healthy mothers who had agreed to breastfeed their babies for at least three months. Were you surprised by the conclusions given the combination of seemingly favorable conditions? Well, I will I'll just make a couple points of clarification. So the the women that were recruited into this study were otherwise healthy, but they did have a range of body mass index. So some had overweight and some had obesity. Um, so we had a, a range of pre-pregnancy body mass index in this cohort. And they indicated an intention to breastfeed for an extended period of time, which is why we recruited them into the cohort. Now, this their particular characteristics didn't make me any more or less surprised regarding the associations that we observed in their babies at six months of age. And I think that's because we had already seen associations in young adults that were also relatively healthy as well with a range of body mass index. So I guess since we know the microbiome is developing in early life and there's just not a lot of bacteria early on because it's in the process of becoming populated with gut bacteria, that was one factor that made me a little bit more surprised that we saw association so early because it wasn't like it was as diverse of a gut microbiome as we see in adulthood. But I, I think pretty much what we found is that these associations exist early in life and are consistent with some of the findings we saw in young adults. And have you looked at how babies with perhaps low birth weight or, or babies who are formula fed have fared? That is definitely a future area of investigation. We did not have many infants in this cohort that had a low birth weight. We actually recruited that, such that participants in the study were not born prematurely. So we don't really have the ability to look at that in this particular cohort. But I think that would be a very interesting question because we know babies that are born early develop differently in early life. Uh, we do have information regarding early life feeding practices, such as breastfeeding and introduction of solid food, as well as supplementing breastfeeding with formula. So this is something we intend to look at down the road. Is it potentially that those infants that are breastfed and breastfed longer might not show the same associations that we see with air pollution as infants that were not breastfed or breastfed for a shorter period of time? And this is something that I would hypothesize to be true, given that we know breast milk is an important pre and probiotic for the developing infant microbiome. So when I get asked, what is it exactly that we can do to help offset some of the potentially negative effects of environmental exposures on the developing microbiome, I think a smart move to do would be to continue to breastfeed as long as possible. And I know that that is difficult for some women, but if you have the ability to breastfeed, continue to do that would be a good call. Finally, what can families in areas with routinely or seasonally poor air quality, like Denver Metro, do to minimize harm to themselves? This is something I actually think of a lot about myself as well, because there are certain things that we can do to help protect our health. And there's certain things we can't control. We can't control fire season. And we get large amounts of particulate matter in the air outside of our homes, or if there happens to be just a really bad ozone day, which we suffer from a lot here in Colorado. Those are things that are beyond our control. 
but we can do things for our own personal environments that can help mitigate or decrease our exposures. And that can be simple things like looking at the air quality index before you go outside to exercise. So you try to pick times of the day also around, let's say commuter traffic where you might get lower exposures. I think with COVID, we've all come to appreciate the importance of indoor air quality as well. So purchasing low cost air filtration systems for your home that you can place in your room while you're sleeping at night could be a great way to also decrease exposures. And then there's things just like opening your windows if you're gonna be cooking, avoiding secondhand smoke exposure. All of these are complex mixtures of inhaled pollutants that we know can have harmful effects on our health. Tanya Alderete is Assistant Professor of Integrative Physiology at CU Boulder and a leading researcher on the connection between air quality and the gut microbiome. Thank you so much for joining me today. Thank you so much for having me. The National Weather Service forecast for the western San Juans calls for a chance of showers and thunderstorms tonight with a low around 45 degrees. Tuesday, there's a 40% chance of showers and thunderstorms with increasing clouds. The high is in the mid-60s with a low around 45. Wednesday, there's a 40% chance of showers and thunderstorms with partly sunny skies and a high around 60 degrees. Wednesday night should be partly cloudy with a low in the mid-40s. This has been the news for Monday, September 26th. Thanks for listening. If you have a story idea or a news tip, call the news team at 970-728-3206. And now, a personal commentary. Hello, CODA listeners. Bright Futures and Wilkinson Public Library are teaming up to bring you a free bi-weekly parent support group. Join us every other Tuesday in the library's magazine room to vent, make new parent friends, or just get out of the house. This new parent support group is intended for parents with children aged 0 to 8, and kids are welcome to attend. Our first meeting is Tuesday, September 27th, from 11.30 to 12.30. Please email Madeline at brightfuturesforchildren.org with any questions. See you at the library. Opinions broadcast over KOTO are those of the speakers. You are also invited to express your views after the news or on access each weekday at around 4 p.m. If you would like to comment, please contact a staff person here at Koto. We encourage you to speak out on important public issues.